Beautiful hymn, huh? To think of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus as his victory. His sufferings have made us free, but those sufferings are his victory. Let's just pray first. Lord Jesus, help us this afternoon as we look at the scriptures again. We know it's been a a long day and we've had much to take in. We're tired. Um, We need your help, your strength, your energy, the ability from you to, to focus, the ability to focus on you. So we commit ourselves now into to your love and to your care that you would speak to all of our hearts. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your own name. Amen. Amen. Turn to First Peter 2, and, and while you're going there, um, I have this strong recollection of um, final year in high school of chemistry. The chemistry teacher did this mock exam for us. He'd been teaching us exam technique. Stuck the exam on, on, on the desk in front of us all and said, you know, um, you can go when you're finished. After three minutes, I walked out. And everyone's sitting there. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with you guys? You know, and they're thinking, what's wrong with you? The whole thing he'd done with us was all about exam technique. And exam technique, you're supposed to read through the exam paper all the way through before you start. The last question said, if you've read this far, you've finished, walk out. And most of them are sitting there for an hour. Well, I have to confess that this time I've failed. Because um, there should also be a, a rule that says if four guys are speaking, make sure you're aware what the others are going to speak on. Because um, um, I think there's going to be a bit of duplication because I didn't read the notes carefully enough. I want to read in... Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start from verse 20. 1 Peter 2 verse 20. It says, For what glory is it, if sinning and being buffeted you shall bear it? But if doing good and suffering you shall bear it, this is acceptable with God. For to this have you been called, for Christ also has suffered for you, leaving you a model that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when reviled, reviled not again, when suffering, threatened not but gave himself over into the hands of him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, in order that, being dead to sins, we may live to righteousness, by whose stripes ye have been healed. As Seher said in his address, where he was allocated verse 23, it's impossible to speak on a passage like this without looking at the context. And because it's necessary to look at the context, 
I won't be able to help going over some of the same ground that Seth has already been over. Um, the verse that I'm supposed to focus on is verse 24. But you're not. You cannot just pluck a verse out of the Bible and say stuff about it because you'll be guaranteed to say the wrong thing. We need to look at the context. Um, Peter's epistle. Peter writes in fives. Um, Daniel was talking talking to us about the um, two sets of five commandments. The Apostle Peter, he understood Christian responsibility. So all the way through this epistle, he's writing in fives. You look at the um, first Peter chapter one, verse more. Let's go all the way to verse one. Um, And he writes to people in five different provinces. And if you run all the way through the first epistle of Peter, you'll find heaps of things put in fives. One of the things is that he speaks about the sufferings of believers in five different ways. Now, we're not going to have time to look up all of them. I'll tell you what they are. And you can find the verses yourself. The first, he talks about the testing of our faith. The second, he talks about suffering for conscience towards God. The third, he speaks about suffering for righteousness' sake. The fourth, he speaks about suffering for the name of Christ. And the fifth, he speaks about suffering because of the activities of Satan as a roaring lion coming against us. That's five sufferings of believers. But he speaks about the sufferings of Christ five times. Maybe this time I'll I'll give you the verses. We read the the first set of verses just now. That is that he suffered for you, all of us, leaving us a model that we should follow in his steps. The second is in chapter 3, verse 18. He suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The third, he suffered in the flesh, and we're to arm ourselves with the same mind. The fourth is that we have a share, well, that was, sorry, that was chapter 4, verse 1, then chapter 4, verse 13, um, we have a share in the sufferings of Christ. And for this we can rejoice. And then chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So in the context, Peter is telling us, we as believers live in a world of sufferings, and the Lord Jesus has already gone before us, and he was the one who suffered more than anybody else ever could have. He's our perfect example. When we come to this paragraph that we're looking at now, um, it starts off with something that is also a major theme in Peter's first epistle. And that something is subjection. The idea of subjection lies at the heart of the first principles of Christianity. I think we've already had it before, maybe from Pete. We live in a world where people are taught not to be subject. The natural normal thing is for man to be subject to God. The natural normal thing is for children to be subject to their parents. The natural normal thing is for citizens to be subject to the authorities of their country. But we live in a world where all that's questioned and all that is thrown overboard and people are told, well, question the authority of this and question the authority of that and rebel against the authority of something else. At five times in Peter's first epistle, he talks about subjection. He talks about subjection um, 
in chapter 2, verse 13, to every human institution. So that's some you know, things like kings and governors and polices and teachers and all those sorts of things. Um, then he talks in verse 18 about servants being subject to masters. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 5, he talks about wives being subjected to husbands. The end of chapter 3, he talks about all the angels and principalities and powers being subject to the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 5, verse 5, he talks about the younger. Um, I've got to find someone older here. Um, this is scary. He talks about the younger being subject to the elder. And the, for all of us, there's going to be someone we're older that, that, that's older than us. So the need for subjection is always there. But right here, um, where we've got to, the immediate context is Peter is talking about the subjection of servants to their masters. Now, this, isn't, this isn't like a lot of the New Testament that talks to people who are slaves um, being obedient to their masters. This is talking, using a different word, this is a word for household servants. This is people who are paid to do a job um, serving in a household. So it has really, really special application to us in our day where the normal thing is that um, we'll, we'll go to school, we'll finish school, we'll start work, and we'll be working for a boss. And Peter goes on to say that we don't need to be subject only to the good bosses, the ones who are nice and kind and gentle and give us pay rises and give us enough time off work and all of that stuff. It says, be subject even to the miserable, nasty ones. Um, then he goes on, and the part that Seher reminded, of, reminded us of really clearly, um, to say, well... Just imagine you're working for a boss and you do the wrong thing and you get in trouble for it and you think, well, I'm a Christian. I need to take that patiently. I need to just bear that. Um, no credit in that whatsoever. If you do the right thing, you know, your boss is trying to get you to do something dishonest and you refuse um, and you suffer for that and you bear it patiently, that's acceptable to God. Sarah mentioned a, a more important one, and that is suffering for the name of Christ. But again, we live in a world where if somebody does something wrong and another one comes and gives even the smallest rebuke, let's imagine it's like you know, driving along the, um, the road um, in the city traffic and someone just changes lanes without a blinker and someone else gives them a toot. What happens? I'm not going to ask you to do the hand action or um, say the words that get said. The smallest rebuke and people get so offended. Now, as Christians, we ought to be completely the opposite to that. Even if we suffer for having done the right thing, we need to be prepared to bear it patiently. Then the question comes, how can we possibly do that? That is just so unnatural to us to be like that. You know, 
Think of a situation, even you suffer from a brother or sister in Christ for having done something that you are sure is the right thing. How do you react? Naturally, our reaction is not a good one. How can we possibly react in such a way that pleases God? And so what Peter does in this little passage is to give us two keys. Seher really spoke about the first key, but I want to go over that a little bit more. The first key is Christ himself. The second key is Christ's sacrifice. The first key comes to us in verse 21, 22 and 23. The second key comes to us in verse 24. First key, it says, verse 21, Christ has suffered for you, leaving you a model that you should follow in his steps. And then tells us about him, it says, who did no sin. Get this really clear. I want everyone to remember this. If you, I know a lot of you know it already. There are three ways in which the Lord Jesus is spoken of in relation to sin. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says he knew no sin. The second is in the first epistle of John. And it says in him is no sin. And the third is what we read here. It says, he did no sin. And those three things, they correspond exactly with what we read about in the Old Testament. Remember the Passover lamb? The children of Israel had to, to kill the lamb, put its blood on the doorpost. Then they had to take the lamb inside and burn it and eat it. And specific mention is made of the head of the lamb, the inward parts of the lamb, and the legs of the lamb. Its head, its legs, and its inwards. And when God told the children of Israel to offer animal sacrifices to him, again, he specifically spoke about the distinct parts of those animals. He said for the burnt offering, for example, its, um, its legs and its inwards, you have to wash in water. Because that animal, you know, it's kind of dirty and it needs to be a suitable picture of Christ. I'm going to make it a good picture of Christ. So wash its legs and its inwards and also offer its head. Head, legs and inwards. This is Christ himself and his sacrifice. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. He did no sin. And notice this, what Peter says. There's only one of those three in which he is a model for us. The model in which we can follow in his steps. He did no sin. He's not a model for us in the fact that in him was no sin. When he was born, there was no sinful nature in him like there is with us. When he lived his whole life, never possibly could it be that a sinful thought or idea or desire came to his mind. In that, we're not like him. But as a model for us, he's a model for us in this in which it says he did no sin. And um, a little outline that I love. 
is taking up an Old Testament thought and applying it into the New Testament. When Israel was instructed to give offerings to God, they were told in the offerings they offered, they were not permitted to include leaven. Leaven is like the element in sourdough bread. It's kind of like yeast, but it's not really yeast. It just comes from the surrounding atmosphere and somehow gets into the bread and the bread rises and we enjoy the taste of it. In what Israel offered, they were to have no leaven because leaven in the Old Testament is always a picture of sin. The Lord Jesus did no sin. In the New Testament, we read of leaven in, I think, six different ways. I was just hoping it was five there for a moment, but it's not. It's six different ways. In Matthew chapter 13, the Lord Jesus speaks of a woman who hid leaven in three measures of meal. And that speaks about the kind of stuff that Jezebel in the book of Revelation did in spreading idolatry and idolatrous teaching throughout Christianity. This is the leaven of of idolatry. The Lord Jesus was so completely free from that kind of leaven that when Satan tempted him, um, he said to Satan, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. For the Lord Jesus, idolatry never came into his, his activities. There was another kind of leaven, um, and you can read about it in Matthew 16 or Mark chapter 8, is the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of Herod. The leaven of the Pharisees was, as Daniel showed to us this afternoon, religion. It was tradition. It was hypocrisy. The leaven of the Sadducees was rationalism. Thinking their way through the word of God, and if it didn't make sense to them with their human logic, they rejected it. The leaven of Herod was political manipulation and worldliness. And with the Lord Jesus, we see really clear examples that those forms of sin never existed in him. The leaven of hypocrisy, there was a time when people said to him, who are you? And he could say, I am exactly what I say. Can we ever say that? I am exactly what I say. There's the total opposite to hypocrisy. He was what he said, and he said what he was. Always perfect. The leaven of the Sadducees, rationalism, The Lord Jesus, in in one instance, he read from an Old Testament scripture, a scripture that said, you are gods. This is a really, it's kind of a weird scripture. Um, But he picks out that scripture. He says, you are gods. If the scripture says, you are gods, why are you complaining when I say, I'm the son of God? And he he finished this with, and the scripture cannot be broken. Now here's a scripture, we might read it and we say, we find that difficult to understand. He, he didn't say that. He said, that's what the scripture says. The scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, here's my conclusion. 
Now, the, the, the Sadducees, they, they kind of go, well, look, you know, this, this doesn't make sense. We are gods, so that mustn't really be part of the Bible. We'll, we'll tear that bit out and we'll throw it away. The Lord Jesus was totally committed to the truth of Scripture. There was no none of that kind of rationalism with him. The last thing, leaven of Herod, this political worldliness. Remember what he said to Pontius Pilate? If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. But now my kingdom is not from hence. The Lord Jesus never played politics. How many is that? That's four kinds of leaven. There's another kind of leaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul is talking about um, evil moral behaviour. And he said to the Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now we know with the Lord Jesus, there was never, ever any evil moral behaviour. He was surrounded by men who were accusing him of all kinds of things. And he says, which of you convinces me of sin? You've seen my whole life. You've seen everything that I've done. Which one of you can point to one single sin? Now, we wouldn't even dare say that to a friend, let alone to an enemy who's attacking us. But the Lord Jesus could honestly say there was never anything morally wrong done in his life. And then the last example, Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul again says to the Galatians who were accepting false teaching, He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. False doctrine, false teaching was something that was a danger for the Galatians. The Lord Jesus, what did he say? He said, my doctrine, my teaching is not mine, but that of the Father who sent me. So whatever form of leaven we can identify in the New Testament, leaven, always a picture of sin. The Lord Jesus was completely clear from that. He never did it. And in this, he's a model for us. It's held out for us that we shouldn't get involved in idolatry. We shouldn't get involved in hypocrisy. We shouldn't get involved in rationalism, questioning the word of God. We shouldn't get involved in worldliness and politics and things like that. We shouldn't participate in moral evil. And we should never accept doctrinal evil, false teaching. Those things are really clear for us in the New Testament. He is a model for us that we should walk in his steps. He did no sin. Second thing, um, it goes on to say in verse 22, neither was guile found in his mouth. Uh, um, Who was it? Sarah or Pete said... um, It's strange sometimes how the, the, um, the Bible puts things in the negative way. You expect it to be there in a positive way, but it puts it in a negative way. It doesn't say um, his mouth was full of good things. It says no guile was found in his mouth. Um, It wants to teach us the positive thing. Not just that we shouldn't be deceptive or cunning or sly in the way that we speak, but it wants to teach us that we should speak in the way that he spoke. And you think of, um, I don't know whether to give you the verses or or to give you the ideas, Um, one or the other. We haven't got time to look them up. I'll give you the chapter. You can find the verse. Luke chapter 4. They wondered at the words of grace that were proceeding out of his mouth. He spoke words of grace. John chapter 7. Those guys who came to 
take him. And they went back to the, the religious leaders and the religious leaders said, well, why didn't you bring him? And they said, we never ever heard a man speaking like he speaks. He spoke unique words. His words were different from the way other men speak. There's an example for us. He spoke, that's John chapter 7. Luke chapter 20, um, he spoke wise words. This, this is where those guys came to him and they said, good teacher. Uh, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? You know, they're trying to get the, the Herodians against the Pharisees, one or the other. You know, the Pharisees, they hated the idea of paying tax to Caesar and the Herodians, well, they're, they're in favour of Herod and they like taxes being paid. Two groups of the Jews, we're going we're gonna to make sure the Lord Jesus hooks up with one of these two and then we'll put a wedge down the middle and we've got him. And what did he say? We know what he said. Show me a coin. Pay to Caesar's, what is Caesar's? Pay to God's, what is God's? Pay to God, what is God's? And then it says, they were amazed. They wondered at the words that he'd spoken, the wisdom that he spoke. So, speaking with wisdom. He spoke comforting words. The disciples when they kind of started to dawn on them that he's not going to be here forever. He's going away. How are we going to cope? How are we going to manage? And the Lord Jesus spoke comforting words to them. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house, many mansions, all, all of those. He spoke words of comfort. Example for us. That's John 14. John chapter 8 He spoke forgiving words, but they were words of grace seasoned with salt. He said said this, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Isn't that words of forgiveness? Neither do I condemn thee. But he adds a little bit of salt into that. Something that's going to touch the conscience. He says, go and sin no more. And the Apostle Paul, he, he, he told us, let your word be always with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you should know how to answer everyone. The last example is that the Lord Jesus, there was no guile in his mouth. Seher told us about this. He spoke straight. He told it like it is. He didn't mince words. He said, this is Matthew chapter 16. Get thee behind me, Satan. Did he say that to Peter? So this wasn't calculated to be offending somebody. This wasn't, well, look, um, I, I'd be careful how I say this to Peter. No, he touched the matter at hand directly and straight. Um, so this, that was six, wasn't it? Sorry, I sort of stuck with five. But um, six examples of how the words of the Lord Jesus were a model that we should follow. Let's keep going. It says, when suffering... I missed the first one. Verse 23. When reviled, reviled not again. Reviling can take many different forms. Um, Have a look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 24. 
I won't wait for everybody to turn it up, otherwise we'll, we'll run out of time. In Matthew 9.24, it's when the little girl had died and he, he went um, to where she was so he could heal her and he said, fear not, she's asleep. And it says, they derided him. I think the uh, ESV says, they laughed at him. Does anyone ever laugh at you? Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. Someone laughs at you, you don't hit back. John chapter 8, it's verse 41. Someone quoted it this weekend. They say to him, We were not born of fornication. That's called innuendo. It's implying something. What were they implying? They were saying, um, We don't think Joseph's really your dad. Um, Mary, you were born without a proper father. They're implying that Mary had had an illicit relationship. And that's how the Lord Jesus was born. This is, has anyone ever done that to you? Innuendo? They just say something that's meant to be really nasty. Not, not actually saying what they mean, but implying it. So that you have to come to the conclusion, then you feel, how do you react? When he was reviled, reviled not again. Mocking. Hail, King of the Jews. They were directly mocking him, ridiculing him in that way. Anyone ever mock you? Look at your stupid ears. What kind of hairdo is that? You might not necessarily be for Christian things. But anything. Well, you're a bit short, aren't you? You fat guy. You know, all, all those kinds of things. Hurtful, nasty mocking. When reviled... You reviled not again. Don't hit back. Gossip. This is um, John chapter 9. After the Lord had healed the blind man. And the religious leaders get the blind man to one side. And, and, and they say, look, admit it. This man is sinful. He's a sinful man. He's saying stuff behind his back. Gossiping about him. Things actually that are untrue. Sometimes gossip can be true. Sometimes it, mostly it's untrue. But again, when reviled, reviled not again. Never hit back. False accusation. Someone says something about you that's totally untrue or, or to you. Um, claiming that you've done something that you never really did. This man said um, he can pull the temple down and rebuild it in three days. He never said that. What was his response? When reviled, he reviled not again. Don't hit back. Lastly, I think oh, this is six again. Sorry. Um, the other one, sarcasm. Has anyone ever been sarcastic with you? You know, they, they, they say um, when the Lord is hanging on the cross, um, ha, uh, let him leave himself to God because God delights in him. Yeah, right. You know, that's the sarcasm's the yeah, right kind of thing where. You don't even have to say, yeah, right, because it's implied. Anyone ever done that to you? Don't hit back. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He left us a model that we should follow in his steps. Now, the, the one that I tried to jump onto too quickly, um, in verse 23, when suffering 
threatened not, but gave himself over into the hands of him who judges righteously. I think we'll need to look up these verses because they might not be as familiar. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, um, Peter refers to um, the, the prophets in verse 10. And he said the prophets prophesied um, about the sufferings of Christ and the glories afterwards. The Old Testament prophets were the ones who prophesied about the sufferings of Christ. So here in, in our verse here, he said, When suffering, he threatened not, but gave himself over into the hands of him who judges righteously. So what I want to do is go to the prophets for examples of this. To the prophets for examples of when he suffered, he didn't threaten, but left himself in the hands of God. So let's pick first hmm, um, Psalm 69 verse 8. The first form of suffering we get here. I'm become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien to my mother's sons. Remember one of the young guys in a young people's meeting say, um, Hey, really are there aliens in the Bible? Um, he became an alien. He was alienated by his family. And in response to that suffering, what does he do? Read verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, Jehovah. He committed himself into the hands of God. Same chapter, verse 21. Yea, they gave me gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. They were trying to make his physical suffering even worse, to make his thirst even worse. And what was his response? Keep going a little bit further. Um, it's in verse 24. He says to God, he didn't take it up himself, he says to God, pour out thine indignation upon them. He doesn't react himself, he leaves this with God. Then the third example in um, Psalm 22, verse 16. And I'll just read the end of the verse. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And we keep re reading a little further on. He says in verse 19, but thou, Jehovah, be not far from me. There he's experiencing physical torment. And he leaves his case with God. Isaiah chapter 49. Pete read this to us this morning. Look at it again. Isaiah 49 and verse 4. And we get this all in one verse. He says, I have laboured in vain. I've spent my strength for naught and in vain. Nevertheless, my judgment is with Jehovah and my work is with my God. It's like he felt like giving up. Can you imagine that of the Lord Jesus? All that he did. My calculation is he must have healed about 200,000 people in the course of 
his less than three years of public ministry. 200,000 people. What strength in order to do that? The late nights, the early mornings, the long distances walking, the times without food, the times without drink. How much strength he had. And yet, come to an end of it, and how many are left? You know, there were 12, then there were 11. And then, and then um, there's, there's Peter and John, and John's kind of a little bit close, and Peter's following from afar off, and then Peter denies him, and there's John somehow in there with the high priest, and there's nobody left. Think all that he did, all that he did for everybody, and he gets to the point, he says, I've spent my strength for naught. But does he stop there and give up there? No, he says, yet my judgment is with Jehovah. He laid himself with God. And the last one in Isaiah chapter 50 Verse 6 and 7. He gave his back to the smiters. He'd not his face from shame and spitting. And how does he finish? But the Lord Jehovah will help me. That's five this time. Um, He never reacted to any of those forms of suffering with threats. But every time... He left his case with God. And that's exactly what Peter says. And what Peter says, he says, because he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. I think we can, um, in various ways and in various measures, experience all of these five forms of things. Alienated by your family. Have a difficult situation that people make even worse. Rubbing salt into the wound. Experiencing physical cruelty, experiencing the feeling of exhaustion, the feeling that we've just wasted our effort, experiencing people adding emotional cruelty to physical things that we're experiencing. And the Lord Jesus, in every case, is our model. Now, that's the first key. The second key is his sacrifice. And when we come to verse 24, this is part of the same passage. It's part of the same context. The first key for us, how can we possibly go through a world and take unjust punishment or suffering against us and take it patiently? How can we possibly do that? Well, first we've got the model. But the second thing here is we've got the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We're not like him. We have sins. He had no sins. And so Peter tells us that it was himself that bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's three little parts to that. Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I want to make really clear. This here is not a gospel message from Peter. You can never say to a sinner, the Lord Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree. Peter's not writing to sinners. Peter's writing to the, um, you can see who he's writing to when you read the, the first few verses. Peter is writing to believers. It's to believers that Peter says, remember this, the Lord Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree. If we're preaching to sinners, we can say Christ suffered once for sin. The just for the unjust, 
that he might bring us to God. But if you say to someone, Christ has borne your sins, that means he no longer has for himself sins to be borne. They're gone. So can you say that to somebody who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus? No. Peter is writing to us, believers. He's not telling us the gospel. He's giving us a key for how we can possibly go through this world and experience unjust suffering and take it in the right way. He tells us, remember this, the Lord Jesus himself, the sinless one, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Nobody else could do it. Nobody else would have done it. It was himself that did it. And he is the only one. So there's, there's Peter's first point. Only the Lord Jesus could, only the Lord Jesus would have done that. Himself. Second thing it says, he bore our sins. Now, I want to turn to Isaiah chapter 53, because a lot of what Peter is saying has been taken from there. Isaiah 53, you, you can open it, and as I mentioned things, you'll find the verses. It says in Isaiah 53 that he was wounded for our transgressions. So he for me, he's my substitute, wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He for me, he's my substitute. Um, It goes on and says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. God was taking away any sense of peace from us in that he experienced it instead of me. He's my substitute. And then, and with his stripes we are healed. I'm going to come to that because Peter leaves that to the end. So we'll come back to that later. It goes on and it says, his soul was made an offering for sin. The sins were our sins, sins of believers. That's what the Lord Jesus bore in his body on the tree. With regard to sin, the concept of sin, the idea of sin, the principle of sin, he suffered for sin in order that God could righteously offer his salvation to the whole world. But when it's a question of sins, the very individual things that we have done wrong, it says, he took my place. He bore my sins in his body on the tree. He had to become a man because I am a man. He had to become a man because I, as a man, had sins. And as a man, he had to suffer on the cross and bear the weight and the feeling of what my sins were when he faced up to a holy God. He felt that. It wasn't just an idea. He bore them. So to bear them, it means he, like he carried them. He felt the weight of what my sins were in his body. He was being punished. He was being judged for my sins. Can you ever imagine someone being worse 
punished and suffering for something they never did, then that, the pure one, the holy one, he takes my sins, my filthy, rotten sins, everything, every bad thing, every bad thought, every bad act I've ever done, and he felt how heavy that was. He felt it like it was guilt. He felt it bodily. He felt the pain of it. Where was that? On the tree. This Peter is only talking about what happened on the cross. And I want to be really, really clear about this. I hope everybody understands it really clearly. On the cross, the period of time the Lord Jesus was hanging there was divided into two parts. Three hours and three hours. The first part, in three hours, the daylight was shining. It was from nine o'clock in the morning until midday. The daylight was shining and men were passing by and they're calling out, ha ha, you know, you think you're the king of Israel, come down. I'm mocking him. All of those things we've been reminded of. And the Lord Jesus there, in those three hours of daylight, when men had they'd beaten him, they'd stuck this crown of thorns on his head, they'd put the purple robe on him, they'd whipped him, they'd done all of those, slapped him in the face, blindfolded him, spat at him. They'd said, come on, tell us who did it. You're a prophet. All of that stuff they did to the Lord Jesus. It culminated in those three hours of daylight. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He says, Father. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. But then, then came a period of time that was unlike any period in the history of the universe. Darkness from midday until three o'clock in the afternoon. Darkness over the whole land. And a word came from the lips of the Lord Jesus that he had never, ever spoken before. In the record of the the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, he says, my God. Never, ever before had the Lord Jesus said that. Throughout the whole of his life, he wasn't bearing sins. He wasn't carrying our sins. He wasn't feeling um, the guilt of our sins. Through the whole of his life, he was feeling with his father this He was feeling as close as anyone could be possible to anybody else. The intimacy he had with his father, we can't even, you can't measure it. It's it's too close to be measured. But then suddenly, for three hours of darkness, he speaks a word that he'd never spoken before. He looks towards heaven, a heaven that's closed, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is when he bore my sins in his body on the tree. This is when he was wounded for my transgressions. This is when he was bruised for my iniquities. This is when he experienced that stroke that Peter calls stripes in the plural, but it's really in the singular, that stroke by which I was healed in that three hours of darkness. If that three hours of darkness had never come, I would have been condemned to hell for eternity. You too. Because everything that man did to him that culminated in those three hours of light, all that did was to add to our guilt. 
to make our guilt even worse than it was before. Until came those three hours of darkness where he took my place, where he suffered for my sins, where he bore my sins in his body on the tree. Um, The scriptures tell us um, about every human component of the Lord Jesus. In his body, it says he bore my sins. In his soul, we read of that in Isaiah, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for (coughs) sin. In his spirit, he dismissed his spirit in order that death would take place. Nobody took his life. He didn't bleed to death. He didn't die of a broken heart, like people say. He consciously, willingly dismissed his spirit in order that he would die for our sins. In those three hours of darkness, Peter says Christ suffered once for sins. If we think of sins, Christ suffered once for sins. He suffered for sins. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think it's verse 3, Christ died for our sins. He suffered. He died. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5, He has washed us from our sins in His own blood. His blood was shed for the remission, the forgiveness of sins. This is how he's spoken of relative to sins in his sacrifice. His soul was made an offering for sin. Now, um, we've spoken just about sins. Suffered for sins, died for our sins, washed our sins in his blood. Let's think now about sin. His soul was made an offering for sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is perhaps the most, I don't know, can I call this the most horrible verse in the Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It continues a a phrase that I started with earlier. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Him who knew no sin, he, that is God, has made sin. Sin for us. Can you just even imagine that? I, I can I can imagine that 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 this this thing that was on me, this sin that I was carrying around with me as a weight, as a guilt, that that got put on him. And in his body he bore that. I can understand that. There's, there's, there's an act. I'm guilty of that act. And God transferred that act to him and punished him instead of me. That I can understand. But this, this here is just so intense that I, I can't understand it. I don't think anyone can really understand it. It says God made him the one who knew no sin. The one who had no sin whatsoever in him. He didn't have a sinful nature. It says he made him to be sin. God 
treated the Lord Jesus in those hours of darkness exactly as he would treat sin. Sin, the root cause of every problem of the human nature, of the, the, the human race. God made him to be that. He caused him to be as sin was in his sight. That's what God did to him. Can, can you imagine suffering like that? I can't. There's a practical outcome. Um, when the Lord Jesus dismissed his spirit, he died. When he died, he not only died for our sins, but in Romans chapter 6, it says he died unto sin. That means by dying, he ended the possibility in his experience of ever having anything to do with sin again. He had lived in a world that was full of sin. He had come to do a work on the cross where he would deal with sin. But when he died, it's, he died so that sin was no longer a part of his experience at all. And the Apostle Peter has given us this model of Christ that we should follow in his steps as key number one. He's given us this sacrifice of Christ as key number two. And ending with this thought, I would have loved to have another half an hour. Because um, there, are, there are six ways in the Bible where death and sin are connected together. I'm going to tell you what they are so that you can think about them deeply and try and study them because this is really, really practical and important for us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says that death came as a result of sin. So death came as a result of sin. Um, by one man, sin entered into the world, and by sin, death. Death passed upon all men. So that's the first connection of death and sin. The second is in Romans chapter 7, and it's verse 8, where Paul was talking about what he was like as an unbeliever. He says that there was a time in my life when in me, sin was dead. That doesn't mean he didn't have sin. It meant he was so unconscious as an unbeliever of the existence of a sinful nature, it was to him as if sin wasn't there. But then along came the law of God, the standards of God, and they spoke to his conscience, and it says, sin revived, but I died. He realised, because his conscience had been touched, that there was sin in him. Before he was even concerned about the things of God, he says sin was dead. Now, in Ephesians comes number three, where it talks about a similar thing, but in the reverse. In Ephesians chapter two and verse one, it says that by nature, as unbelievers, we were dead in sins. Not sin was dead in me, but we were dead in sins. As far as God was concerned, looking down upon us, is there any life in that person whatsoever? None. No life in me at all as an unbeliever because of sins. I had no movement towards God. 
God could, could paint the most beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. He could show him as crucified before my very eyes. He could tell me about all his sufferings. He could tell me about all his love. And he could, he could call out and he could say, Greg, um, do you believe in that? And my response would have been, you go down to the cemetery and, and, and preach the most beautiful sermon that you could possibly preach. How many people are going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks, I believe that. No. In Ephesians, God looks at the picture another way. He shows that towards him, there was no life at all. There was no possibility of response. Until he put something in us, there would be no change. So that's the third um, relationship of sin and death. The fourth here... um, Now, I'll I'll leave this fourth one until last, because this is our one. There's another in Romans chapter 6. That's in verse 2 and verse 11. Now, Paul is speaking to believers. Those first three were really talking about unbelievers. We've got three now that are talking about believers. Paul talking to believers says, How can we that are dead to sin live any longer in it. And then he goes on to show that in the sight of God, we have died with Christ. When Christ died on the cross, God considers us to have died with him. That all the sins of which we were guilty, the penalty has been paid for them. And not only that, the death that I deserved, I have actually experienced. Not in personal experience, but because Christ died, I died with him. And then in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, Paul says, So, reckon yourself, consider yourself, count yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, alive unto God. It's like Paul is saying, Now, um, are you dead? Do you feel dead? um, When sin comes along, do you feel like um, it's attracting to you? He says, okay, now let's play make-believe. You just pretend actually that you're you're dead. That that sin that's coming to tempt you and try and get control over you, pretend you're in the cemetery, right? And and, along along comes someone and says, here, here, um, there's there's a $50 note that's just hanging out of that guy's pocket. You can just pinch it. You're lying dead in the cemetery. You can't even reach out. Play dead. But it's not playing dead. It's actually believing what God says. God says, you are dead. You don't have to make yourself dead. You don't have to die. You have to believe that when Christ died, you died with him. Count that it's true in your life. Count it to be true. And there's a a way forward, a way of victory. There's there's another connection of sin with death in Romans chapter 8. That's verse 10. It says the the body is dead on account of sins. It's a similar thought to that previous one. The sins we do, how do we do them? We do them in our body. And it's like that we count as if our body is dead, not just me as a personality. We count that our, our body is dead. Our body might have some desire, some craving after a sinful thing, And we count it to be dead with respect to sin. Now we get what Peter says here. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
in order that. You notice this, this is, this is not a gospel message, like I said. This is a message to believers intended as a practical message. He did that for me in order that, being dead to sins, we may live to righteousness. In Romans, we're dead to sin. Sin is that evil principle within us that wants to control us. To control us like a king ruling over us. To control us like a master pushing a slave into doing something. To control us like a dictator of a country um, forcing us to do what's wrong. And we say, sorry, Mr. King. Sorry, Mr. Dictator. Sorry, Mr. Master. I'm dead. And you've got no control over a dead man. Dead to sin. But here in Peter, it's dead to sins. That is, those things that I did, I'm no longer connected with. The word, Peter's word here for dead is not the normal New Testament word for dead. It's the word that we use sometimes, our, our dearly departed. Our departed. Someone has gone away. We've gone away from sins. The life that I had before, the things that I did before, I don't do them anymore. Why not? Why not? Because the Lord Jesus suffered on the tree for my sins. Can you imagine doing something that actually would, would be something that will add to his sufferings? He says, you're departed from that. You're disconnected from that. And this is where we then finally get to Peter's last point. By whose stripes you've been healed. These two parts of the verse run in parallel. I've I've really enjoyed seeing that. The first part of the verse, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That, being dead to sins, we may live to righteousness. There's the first part. He did this so that this should happen. Now the second part runs in exact parallel with it. It says, by whose stripes, that relates to the first part, You've been healed. That relates to the second part. I know there's weird teaching out there in Christianity that says because the Lord Jesus got whipped by the soldiers and by the, those nasty guys, therefore Christians don't get sick. Yeah? Hmm. Right. Um, anyone, anyone had COVID here? Um, anyone had um, diarrhea? Anyone... Um, <laughs> I don't know. Anyone coughed? Do Christians not get sick because the Lord Jesus got whipped? Like, imagine not even plucking a verse out of context, plucking a couple of words from the verse out of context. These words, by whose stripes you've been healed, they run in parallel with the first part. By whose stripes is he bore our sins in his body. God took if I can put it like this, a dirty great rod and belted him with it so hard because of my sins. And because of that, I've been healed. Healed of what? Getting sick? No. Healed of being connected with sins anymore. This is the point that Peter is making. Not just let's consider Christ and think about him. He was on the cross and he died for me and he died for my sins and because of that I'm going to heaven and I I really appreciate that. Of course that's true and we should. We should do more and more and appreciate that more and more. But the reason why Peter is saying all this is to have a practical outcome for us. The reason is to give us one of those two keys by which we can be encouraged to live 
in a horrible world, a world that's going to cause us unjust suffering, a world that's going to cause us all kinds of difficulties, a world in which when we experience that, we need to react like the Lord Jesus. We cannot possibly do that without the two keys. One is his example. The second is what he did on the cross. And when we think of that second, it was so that we might be healed from that worst disease that ever there is, the committing of sins that are so offensive to God. We'd better pray. I'm sorry I've gone over time. Lord Jesus, we're, we're glad to admit that in our nature and by nature, we're nothing like you. But we're also so thankful that because we were not like you by nature, you became like us as much as you possibly could by becoming a man. And that as a man, having emptied yourself, as we were thinking earlier, that you are willing to bear our sins in your body, that you are willing to to take the place that we deserve, that you are willing to suffer the things that we should have suffered. Help us, Lord Jesus, in thinking of that, to be reminded what a serious thing it is to commit sins. Help us to use the reason why Peter wrote this. Help us to use it as a key in our lives so that we might be really genuinely departed from sins. Help us to look at your example and be really committed to following in your steps. Thank you again for all the different lessons you've brought before us, both today and yesterday. And as we've already prayed, we ask that when we go away from here, go away from the seclusion of this place, back out into the outside world, that we'll take with us some of the things that we've learned so that we might live here more for your glory and for the glory of God. We really ask your help in these things. I'm mindful too now that our dear brothers and sisters have been preparing for us in the kitchen, looking after our bodily needs, and we're grateful for them. But we're grateful too to be able to trace every act of goodness of their kindness back to you. To be able to trace the provision of the food all the way back to your hand. You've provided for everything. We thank you for this. Thank you for the spiritual food you've given us and also now for the physical food. We give thanks in your own name, Lord Jesus. Amen.